Hello and welcome to The Bunker. I'm Arthur Snell. Everyone listening to this will remember the day when they heard the extraordinary story of Sergei and Yulia Skripal found on a park bench in Salisbury. Initially, passers-by wondered if the two had got drunk at lunch and were spaced out sitting there on that bench. But then their situation quickly became rapidly far more serious. They were rushed into intensive care and we realised that they had been poisoned with Novichok, a nerve agent. This was the first time a nerve agent had been used on British soil and represented an extraordinary escalation by the Russians against British security. But what exactly is a nerve agent and what exactly was going on there and more broadly in this strange world? Well, there's nobody better place to help us understand that than our guest today, Dan Cajetta. Dan is the author of Toxic, A History of Nerve Agents, and he is himself a former US Army chemical warfare specialist and has continued to work in this field. So, Dan, welcome to The Bunker. Oh, thank you. It's not even the first bunker I've been to. It's the first virtual bunker I've been to, I think. I'm, I'm glad to be here. Well, it's good to have you. Dan, let's just jump straight in there with Salisbury. Obviously, most of us, or almost everybody in the population, when they heard the story of this couple having been found sitting on a park bench, no one was quite sure who they were, what was the problem. Nobody really had an idea what was going on. But you're one of the very few people, I think you might have been actually the first person outside government service who actually guessed that this was a nerve agent attack. Can you talk us through that in terms of what you were thinking and hearing at the time and how you reached that conclusion? Well, first of all, some, some one person being found ill in a spot is, is not unusual. Two people, quite different age description, you know, at the same time, both being ill in a similar manner to the point of needing emergency medical assistance, uh, that actually raises a lot of suspicion, okay? And then when one of them turns out to be a GRU defector, and then his daughter, okay, the, that, that is just, that's odd. It's very odd, just even there, regardless of what has made them sick. And then you put this in the context of, for example, the Litvinenko poisoning, which uses a radioactive substance, polonium, back in, uh, I think that was 2006. And you put it in the broader context of various various Russian emigres in this country uh, coming to um, unusual or unexplained deaths. Now, I couldn't really put my finger on one particular thing as a nerve agent at the time, until I started hearing stories about how Salisbury Hospital was in, was in lockdown. They were treating it as a major hazardous materials incident. That's not a heart attack. That's, you know, it's leading into the hazardous substance, you know, category here. That kind of led you to, to that conclusion. And of course, that was eventually Prime Minister Theresa May made that statement, which is very, very sort of memorable to the House of Commons. And for most of us, that would be the first time we'd ever heard this word Novichok. But obviously, it wasn't the first time that you'd heard it. So um, I'm now going to ask something completely unreasonable, which is, can you give us a very quick sort of potted history of nerve agents, what they are, and where Novichok fits into that? Okay. Nerve agents are a category of chemical, not all of which are weapons, by the way. Some even have medicinal purposes. One or two are naturally occurring. But nerve agents are a class of chemical that uh, disrupts the normal functioning of the nervous system by effectively causing the nervous system to go into overload. I'll leave the molecular chemistry out of this. 
but I can explain that if it becomes relevant. Nerve agents were developed by accident as a byproduct of research into pesticides. Uh, and this research was underway in Germany in the 1930s. And a handful of chemists at IG Farben, the chemical company, came across this category of chemicals that was, some of them were actually very good pesticides, and a few actually still end up still in use as pesticides. But some of these chemicals they worked on were just too dangerous for use around people. Now, what that meant was that the German government sort of said, hmm, this is all very interesting. This could be a possible technical improvement on the earlier first and second generation of chemical weapons. When I first and second generation, by that, I mean things like chlorine, phosgene, mustard gas, all the stuff that had been used in the First World War. And none of those, none of those earlier First World War era chemicals were by any means an ideal chemical warfare agent. Now, the nerve agents, you know, had the potential of getting closer and closer and closer to this so-called ideal chemical warfare agent. They were far more deadly. They were deadly via multiple routes because you could absorb them through your skin or you could inhale them. Also, very importantly, they were rapidly acting and they were rapid, rapidly acting as incapacitants. To, uh, so if you inhaled them, you were actually quite quickly incapacitated. This is important as a weapon because chemical weaponry is not so much about necessarily killing the enemy, but rendering him unable to fight on the battlefield. Now, so what happened is the, the Germans built a, a huge industrial capacity to mass produce the first of these military nerve agents, a substance called taboon. It's sort of the, the gateway into chemical warfare agents and the nerve agents. Manufactured at least 12,600 tons of them during the during the Second World War, didn't use them for a variety of reasons that, you know, I've gone into in some of my other talks, but didn't use them. But this technology and this new class of chemical weapons was discovered by both East and West at the end of the Second World War, both of whom had a major epiphany saying, oh my God, this is the next wave in chemical warfare. And so running in parallel alongside the nuclear arms race and the missile, uh, um, the the missile race, you know, uh, the race for ICBMs, running alongside of that was a lesser known but equally important chemical arms race between the Soviet bloc and the, uh, and the West. If we kind of fast forward to uh, Salisbury, would it be right to say that that's the first time that the Novichok was actually deployed, used, as it were, in anger? Or are there other, other case studies? There is a late 90s poisoning in 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 russia that may or may not have used a novichok i've heard both ways on it i mean part of this stuff is because it's so secretive and conspiracy theories circulate quite routinely around this stuff there was a, there was a case where the target of the assassination and I, you'll have to forgive me it uh, the name escapes me here i should have looked it up where some a persistent nerve agent of some description was actually put in the guy's telephone handset in his actual landline telephone and right. he exposed himself to that that could have been novichuk it could have been some other nerve agent uh, right but that's a possibility this these 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 novichuk families and to say novichuk is one thing is a bit of a misnomer it's a it's a it's a category of things you know the term of art used in the western you know world in in special circles is next generation chemical threats which is just as sort of uh, just as much a pseudonym as novichuk these novichuks weren't widely talked about because i'm not sure anybody knew really whether or not particularly after Russia signed the Chemical Weapons Convention in the mid-1990s, whether any of this was moving forward or not. Yeah. 
whether this was just uh, of academic interest. Uh, interestingly, when Russia assigned the Chemical Weapons Convention as ceded to it, they never declared any stockpiles of, uh, of, of Novichok. They declared plenty of stockpiles of um, Sarin and Soman and their version of VX. Um, so this was always literally their secret weapon. Yeah. Um, but I guess one of the big questions, and, you know, that in this world there are skeptics and conspiracy theorists, one of the big questions is, well, what was the point if you didn't manage to kill them in using that poison? Whereas, you know, sarin, as, as we both know, has killed huge numbers of people in, in conflict situations. So what, what's your understanding of why Novichok was used in that case and the reasons that they were able to, to survive? Well, I can only speculate as to the reasons. I mean, one reason is that actually, if you're trying to kill somebody by something that they they contact and then absorb through the skin, there are not that many of these things. Uh, there really aren't. And so that that list of, if you're looking at, say, putting something in somebody's food, you know, there's thousands of things you can put in somebody's food or drink to, to, to kill them. Uh, if you're looking at something that you're going to, I don't know, fumigate their house with and, you know, they're going to breathe it and fall over dead. Yeah, there's hundreds of things you could do that. Now, with that, because of the way air moves, you run the risk of probably possibly killing all the neighborhood as well, too. But something that's highly targeted, uh, you know, a guy who lives on his own, you know, putting it on a door handle. It's it's fairly specific to the one person or, you know, in this case, too, because his daughter was there. I have no idea whether she was an intended victim or not. You can focus in the target much more specifically rather than having it spread around the wide area. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, so there, there, that's, that's, that, there is that. Now, the issue of whether or not, um, you know, the Screeples were to die from this. First, first things first, the general note, poisonings as a matter of assassination are variable. There's been a lot of unsuccessful poisonings in history, right? No method of assassination is perfect. Poisonings have you know, a variable track record, okay? You poison somebody's food, he feels sick to his stomach, he throws up, most of the poison goes. But in this particular case, it's reasonable to expect that maybe the idea was that they were going to handle the poison coming into the house and probably die at home. The fact that saved them was the fact that they got exposed to leaving their house and they collapsed in a public place and somebody got assistance to them because, well, many, most poisonings have some sort of medical countermeasure of various effectiveness. Uh, nerve agents have a specific and well-known course of treatment. Uh, it's, not unknown in, uh, it's not unknown to UK doctors because the same kind of syndrome happens with accidental organophosphate poisonings. And not only that, the, the key antidote, if you will, the key, uh, the key medical drug, uh, is a substance called atropine, which is given for a lot of things and is in every ambulance and every A&E in the country. Atropine is actually given also to boost heart rate when heart rate is very depressed. Clearly, both Sergei and Yulia got this atropine uh, administered quite early on. So that was life-saving. So it's a situation like that. And it's same thing with, uh, same thing with uh, Mr. Navalny. Yeah. So can you say a little bit about that case? So just a couple of years later, you had Alexei Navalny, the leading opposition figure in Russian politics, mm -hmm. also being poisoned. So uh, what, what's the story there? Well, I think it's a similar situation. Uh, he, he handled something that had the nerve agent on it. 
And because that exposure profile, that sort of thing, transdermal exposure uh, with these nerve agents takes some time to absorb into the body. It depends exactly where you absorb it. It depends on, for example, things like subcutaneous fat. And so these things are, this particular method is good for a delayed acting end result. So he got sick got, while on this airplane. Now, the thing that saved his life was the fact that, that the airline the, the pilots decided to make an emergency landing. If they decided to carry on and just let him be sick, he probably would have died on that flight. Uh, yeah. so, so in both the Scripple and Navalny situations, uh, they got lucky because people made actually good human decisions to help, help the person who was not doing well. Okay. And it's, it's, it's literally equivalent of, gee, that guy over there's got a gun. He's about to shoot pushing the guy who's about to get shot out of the way. Or, gee, the guy just got shot. Let me go stick my handkerchief and hold down really hard where it's bleeding so he doesn't bleed to death. It's a similar situation. You know, okay. intervention, by, intervention by bystanders um, has, has saved these people. Whereas yeah. if things were to run their normal course, they probably would have died. And what's your sense of the objective in both of these cases do you think it's more about sending a message than specifically about taking one person out or another person out? Yes, I think it is. I think the method is the message. People that the Russian regime don't, uh, doesn't like end up dead in a lot of different ways. They get they can easily get crushed to death by snowplows when the uh, uh, when when mysteriously all the security cameras just aren't working then that one street, or they get shot, or they just disappear into the dark at night, or they have heart attacks, or what have you. This is a case where I think in these cases, I mean, there's several things going on. First of all, if you're trying to intimidate others and not just the person involved, uh, doing so in a horrific way with a chemical that probably has long-term side effects, if we have time, we can talk about that. Whether or not that person ends up dead, whether the target ends up dead or not, the target has ended up you know, intubated in an artificial coma in a hospital and is very ill for a very long period of time. That's just as intimidating as being shot. Yeah. Uh, so is the message, I mean, you know, Sergei Skripal probably, I don't think, is a direct threat anymore. Uh, is this an age-old vendetta? Possibly. But is it really, is this to prevent future Skripals? Uh, if every now and then you have to uh, discourage defection. Yeah. E even if you have defected and resettled, you're, you're never safe is, is the yeah. And is it the same thing? Is it really about Navalny or is it to prevent the next Navalny from coming? You said a little bit about side effects. So to what extent can one make a full recovery from exposure to one of these substances? Well, the answer is nobody really knows. What we don't know about the human nervous system and how the brain works is pretty is pretty big still. All right. You know, uh, when, the, when, when these things were developed, we knew very little. We know a lot more, but there's still a lot that we don't know. Nerve agents work by interfering with a complex mechanism, uh, set of mechanisms involving neurotransmitter chemicals and enzymes. And the thing is, your brain is a huge, huge, huge pocket of these nerve cells. And how these nerve agents affect things in the brain, whether or not they cause, whether the nerve agents cause long-term physical damage to nerve cells, it's rumored that the Novichoks are far better at that than things like sarin. Um, science is still unsettled on that. But messing around with the chemistry in the nervous system is going to have knock-on effects in the neuropsychiatric realm. Uh, yeah. ins insomnia, delusions, 
paranoia, anxiety, depression. These things are all known. If you want to read my book, there's a whole chapter about this guy named Michael Yandel uh, who gave me permission to tell his story. He was an American soldier exposed accidentally to sarin in Iraq in the early 2000s in an old shell. And he, he, his road to recovery was not, was not easy. And it was mostly on the psychiatric side. It wasn't, it wasn't physical. And there's a lot of people with long-term problems associated with the Tokyo incident. Yeah. So, I mean, it's possible that if you give somebody quite a, a serious dose of this, the idea might be that you're going you're gonna to disrupt their normal functioning for a long time to come. And how long that might be, I don't think anybody knows. And so is that a possible motive? Is it, even if we don't kill this guy, uh, he's going to be not what he was. I mean, yeah. I, that could be. I, I'm, again, I'm only speculating, but I'm speculating on the basis of my 30 years of thinking about this stuff. You've written the, the history of nerve agents, and, and I'm sure, you know, lots of the listeners will be interested to take a look at that book. But what, what do you think the future of it is? So we're in 2020. Almost every country on Earth has abandoned the use of these uh, weapons, and yet they still continue to be deployed in certain circumstances. What do you foresee as the future? I'm mostly optimistic, believe it or not. People think I'm some sort of doom or gloom guy. The reason why this is interesting to talk about is that actually it's a bit of a rarity. The, the exceptions to chemical arms control and the international sort of moratorium, moral opprobrium against chemical weapons, the exceptions are these incidents as opposed to the normality. Uh, unlike, say, landmines or submarines or, you know, airstrikes or conventional explosives or guns, I mean, which are ubiquitous. We talk about these, these exceptions. This is largely an area of successful arms control. We just need to keep it up. The OPCW probably needs some strengthening. You know, chemicals like the Novichoks need to get uh, incorporated into the Chemical Weapons Convention. Some of them have, uh, despite all kinds of bureaucratic and administrative stalling by, guess what, the Russians. So, we need to push to fill in the margins on this. There's only a couple countries in the world that have not ratified this. It includes you know, North Korea. It also includes Egypt, interestingly. The Egyptian chemical weapons program is a, is, a, is a bit of an unknown. We need to fill in these last few gaps, and we need to be better about enforcing the rules where they are. Also, I think because all of these uses of chemical weapons almost immediately become subject to propaganda, disinformation, misinformation, conspiracy theories – we need to do a lot to counter misinformation, conspiracy theories, and things like that, because they actually make the arms control and non-proliferation job harder, because they sow doubt where there doesn't need to be doubt. Yeah, and of course, tragically, in the case of Syria, we saw so much of that. Here in the West, people who you would assume would be completely opposed to a military dictatorship deploying chemical weapons against its own people, and yet a lot of those people were constantly trying to find excuses and, and mm. create sort of uh, conspiracies against that. Oh. Um, to what do you attribute the relative success of those people, those conspiracists? Well, I, this is almost an entire different podcast. And you know, I, I am also cognizant we're running low on time here. And we could probably make an entire podcast on disinformation in the Syrian war quite easily. I think some, somehow there is this moral opprobrium. There's this idea, whether it starts from the, after the First World War, that you know, chemical warfare is a really, really bad thing. So there's people who just naturally don't want to believe it when it does happen. Uh, there's also people who have 
for whatever reason, fixated on a particular side in the conflict, and therefore something inconvenient comes up that makes their previous sort of choice of alignment in the conflict morally compromised, uh, they want to squash that bit that makes it morally compromised. You know, if people think, you know, for example, it goes on another in other uh, sort of you know, spheres too. So if you really think Russia really does deserve to own and operate the Crimea and really is in the right in this war with Ukraine, then all of a sudden this Russian downing of, a, of, a, of an airliner is awfully, awfully inconvenient for your objective, uh, your, your, your perspective. Uh, so uh, you want to squash the stuff that is inconvenient to your worldview. I mean, there are just people that are like that, you know, you see it today. People don't want to wear masks, so they find reasons to not wear masks, and they latch onto uh, you know false ideological justifications of why masks don't work against COVID and things like that. Sadly, I think it's an aspect of human psychology. I kind of get a little bit out of my depth once I get to that. I view myself as uh, almost too close to this conspiracy theory stuff to to uh, co- comment objectively, because as you've probably seen on my Twitter, I fight this stuff every single day of the week, Arthur. Yeah, and we're all very grateful to you for doing that. And Dan, I'm also grateful to you for for joining us today in the bunker. Just a reminder to everybody, Dan's book, Toxic, is published by Hearst, will be available at all good bookshops and possibly even some bad bookshops. Dan, thank you for joining us in the bunker. Thank you so much. There's a new Bunker Daily on Mondays, Wednesdays, Thursdays and Fridays with the main panel show on Tuesday. If you're enjoying the podcast, please consider backing us on Patreon. You'll get an ad-free show, a shout-out in the weekly edition, and a mug and T-shirt. Just search Patreon Bunker Podcast. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time. The Bunker Daily was presented by Arthur Snell. The producer was Andrew Harrison. The assistant producers were Jacob Archbold and Jana Sofronievich. An audio production was by me, Alex Reese. Theme tune by Kenny Dickinson, The Bunker Daily, is a Podmasters production.